Today, we are going to talk about one of the greatest businesses in the history of American capitalism. I know we talk about a lot of great companies on this podcast, but this one is special. Welcome to Stock Stories, episode 39. Hello, welcome to the Stock Stories Podcast. I am Alex, your host, and welcome to the show. Stock Stories is the podcast dedicated to helping you, the individual investor, become better at making investing decisions. And we do that by studying real companies. We study companies in the S&P 500 because... They're well-capitalized, they have a lot of history, and we can learn from them. They're businesses that tend to be right in our faces as we're going about our daily lives, as we're brushing our teeth, as we're having lunch, as we're driving to and from work. These companies are all around us. And if we want to become better investors in businesses, it pays to understand the business models and where these companies come from. So that is the primary tool that we use on the show to help us learn. Additionally, we also talk about mental models. These are thought experiments that allow us to frame problems differently in our mind. It's kind of like the philosophy behind different principles, and we can take that philosophy and apply them not just to investing, but to other areas of our lives. But today, we are talking about a company. This is, as I mentioned at the beginning, one of the greatest companies in American capitalism. It's one of probably the most loved companies out there. And as far as brand recognition, it is right up there with Colgate Palmolive as far as worldwide brand recognition. Today, let's talk about Coca-Cola. Now, Coca-Cola has a long and storied history within American business and really American culture. And so as I go through this episode today and we look at the history and we look at the facts, try to think to yourself how deeply the products that Coca-Cola offers have been entwined, intertwined with the culture of America and with other cultures throughout the world. Uh, And think about how powerful that is from a business standpoint um, as, as you're listening. So as I usually do, I want to start at the beginning. How did Coca-Cola begin? Every company has its origins, whether large or small, whether great or mediocre. But they all tend to start from humble origins. So back in the 1800s, there was a man named John Pemberton, and he was a pharmacist in Atlanta. 
and he was a Civil War veteran, but he had a problem and he was struggling with an addiction to morphine. And he was looking for an alternative to morphine as a drug. And so he ended up creating uh, a formula for a soda and he called it Coca-Cola. Now the name Coca-Cola can be broken down into two parts. Coca comes from coca leaves, which is where cocaine is actually derived from. And then cola with a K, K K-O-L-A, comes from cola nuts. And these ingredients contain caffeine. So if you mix caffeine with cocaine, you're going to get pretty interesting results. And so at the time, it was a popular belief that carbonated water was good for your health and would cure your diseases and illnesses. So Pemberton decided to combine these ingredients with a sparkling water into this proprietary beverage that he called Coca-Cola. Now, he started going into business in the late 1800s, and he allowed a few business partners to sell the formula with him. But he gave his son, Charlie, the rights to the name Coca-Cola. So he started selling this in his pharmacies, and a couple other businessmen in Atlanta were doing the same. And then in 1888, a young drug businessman named Asa Candler discovered Coca-Cola, and he decided to purchase some of it from Pemberton. So he bought one-third of the rights to the formula. So Candler realized that Coca-Cola was a really good-tasting beverage, and he saw a lot of potential for it. But he didn't have the rights to the name. So because he had the rights to sell with the formula, he started making his own soda, and he used various different brand names like Yum Yum and Coke with a K, but none of these names ever caught on and he began to become frustrated because he felt like he could never really grow the brand of this delicious soda um, without that special name, Coca-Cola, which was beginning to catch on. Now, within that same year, John Pemberton suddenly died and so Asa Candler saw this as an opportunity to begin to consolidate control of this company as opposed to just owning one piece of it. So Asa Candler actually showed up to John Pemberton's funeral and he ended up buying the title to the name uh, from uh, Pemberton's son's mother for $300 just went up to the funeral and made a business offer right there. Now the son, Charlie, who previously had the naming rights, he ended up dying, unfortunately, of an opium overdose. And so the stars kind of aligned for Asa Candler to take over this company. By 1889, he had bought out the other couple of business partners that had initially started with Pemberton, and he became the sole owner. Now, this was really the birth of Coca-Cola, the business. He incorporated the Coca-Cola company in 1892. And this is when the story really starts. He marketed Coke aggressively. He was innovative when it came to merchandising. And he spread this soda all around the United States. Now, by 1895, it was sold in every state in the United States. And... 
1899, he had sold bottling contracts to a few gentlemen named Thomas and Whitehead. Thomas and Whitehead were, they had their own story kind of in and of themselves, but they were the first bottlers for Coca-Cola. So the way that Coca-Cola is set up as a business is that Coca-Cola doesn't actually produce the finished product of a bottle of Coke. What they do is take natural ingredients and some other proprietary things and create a syrup concentrate. That syrup concentrate is then sold to bottlers who combine it with sparkling water and packaging and then distribute it to restaurants, vending machines, convenience stores. This basic operating model has been in place since 1899 when this bottling contract was first sold. And so that's how Candler began to grow the Coca-Cola empire is by effectively franchising the rights to bottle this syrup concentrate and sell it as a soda. And an amazing thing is that he expanded even beyond the United States so early in the company's history. By 1906, Coca-Cola had operations in Canada, in Cuba, and Panama. So he kept growing, and um, Asa Candler decided to retire in 1916, ended up becoming the mayor of Atlanta shortly thereafter. But around this time, uh, Coca-Cola was having some other innovations. So the famous Coca-Cola bottle. So you can imagine that kind of curvaceous shape of the Coca-Cola bottle. That was an invention around the early 1900s. And the reason that this came about was company management wanted to have a distinguishing feature on the bottle that was hard to counterfeit because Coca-Cola was gaining popularity. So a lot of knockoffs were coming onto the market. So this was a way to differentiate the product. And they wanted this bottle to be identifiable just by touch in the dark so that people would know, oh, this is a Coca-Cola bottle. And so that was one innovation. Another major innovation of the company was that early in the 1900s, advertising was really well done by Coke. They used merchandise, they used magazines, they had some of the first coupons, and they also had endorsements from famous stars at the time endorsing Coca-Cola products which was quite innovative for the early 20th century. So in 1919, there was a man named Ernest Woodruff, and him as well as some other investors came together, and they purchased Coca-Cola for $25 million, and then they went public. Coca-Cola became a publicly traded company at this time. So one fun fact about this is the returns you could have earned if one of you or my heirs had purchased a single share during the Coca-Cola IPO. So the Coca-Cola IPO, a single share could have been bought for $40. Um, and this is in 1919 dollars. So naturally this is a lot more inflation adjusted, but if you had bought a single share of Coca-Cola and over a 93 year time period, had simply held that share and reinvested any dividends that you got, by 2012, your money would have compounded to $9.8 million. That's from a single share. 
So this should serve to illustrate how powerful and excellent business can be at compounding wealth if the business itself is excellent, of course, and also if that ownership position is held for a long, long time and just left to compound for years and years. And what that math works out to is 14% annual returns. So that's a pretty good rate of return over a very long time period. Over more recent history, in case you were wondering, if you were to measure back from 1985 through 2018, so 33 years, the last 33 years of data, the annual returns have been 13% with dividends reinvested. So not too far off from the super long-term compounding rates. So Coca-Cola has remained a powerful business in recent decades, uh, with a lot of that growth really coming in the 80s and 90s, um, which was kind of like one of Coca-Cola's major growth spurt eras. So back to the history. So in 1925, um, the secret formula of the Coca-Cola formula was placed in a bank vault in the trust company of Atlanta. And this has become kind of like a, a legend that it's the most closely guarded trade secret in American capitalism. So if you were to look at a can of Coke and look at the ingredient section, you would see that it contains a couple different ingredients that are recognizable. And then it contains this really esoteric ingredient, natural flavors. Well, that natural flavors phrase is indicative of the secret part of the formula. And so to this day, um, there's been lots of speculation and scientists are pretty sure they've been able to recreate it and know what it is, but um, the official ingredient list has never been publicly unveiled. So throughout the 1920s, Coca-Cola kept expanding and especially in international territories. So bottling operations began in multiple countries. These included Belgium, Bermuda, China, Colombia, Germany, Haiti, Italy, Mexico, the Netherlands, and Spain. So Coke was in all of these countries as far back as the 1920s. And as I was studying Coca-Cola, I realized the parallels between Coke and Colgate-Palmolive. Now, Colgate-Palmolive has an even longer history, as we learned a few episodes ago, um, but they used a lot of the same... Uh, marketing marketing tactics and kind of the same growth philosophy, international growth philosophy early on that Coca-Cola did. Um, so they were in all these countries way before um, anybody else really from America. And one innovative thing that executives wanted to do during this period was they wanted to introduce Coke to the world. So at the very first Olympic Games in Amsterdam, um, actually, I'm not sure if it was the first Olympic Games, but the Olympic Games in Amsterdam, it was the first time that Coca-Cola partnered with the Olympics to be a sponsor. So think about a uh, massive population of the earth. A significant portion of them have now been exposed to your brand because you've advertised literally on the world stage. And so this partnership continued over the decades, and Coke is still partnering with the Olympics to this day. So growth continued through the 1930s, and they expanded to Australia, Austria, Norway, and South Africa. 
They also invested in marketing Coke in different times of the year. So if you can imagine, Coca-Cola grew in popularity. It was mainly popular in the summer months because that's when it's hot outside and you want a nice ice cold Coca-Cola. So in order to boost winter sales, they created a new ad campaign featuring Santa Claus. Now, this is interesting because the Santa Claus and Coca-Cola pairing has been going on for years, way back since the 30s, but the artistic representation of Santa Claus has actually shaped kind of what Americans view as Santa Claus, which is like this, this big, like, big guy with a white beard, uh, kind of jolly old St. Nick looking character. And so really the American perception of Santa Claus came from Coca-Cola's advertising uh, way back in the 1930s. So Coca-Cola was always able to be kind of one step ahead of every other company as far as how they were advertising and kind of creating those psychological associations with things that people look forward to. Kids see a picture of Santa Claus and they look forward to Christmas. Well, if you put a picture up of Santa Claus holding a Coca-Cola, that's a mental model of mere association where simply by connecting two things, regardless of whether they've been related before or not, or whether it's logical or not, the fact that you put them together makes you associate attributes of thing A with thing B and vice versa. So by associating Coca-Cola with Santa Claus, oh, Coca-Cola, we want Coke at Christmas because Santa Claus drinks Coca-Cola, right? So it's pretty genius um, psychological uh, advertising when you think about it. So through the decades, they advertise in every form of media. In the 50s, they were one of the first companies to advertise with famous African-Americans which was untold at the time, given that the country was still very racially segregated. And they just were innovators in all aspects of media. Around this time in the 50s, Coke came up with new products. So they introduced Fanta in Italy in 1955. And then once they saw success there, they brought it back to the United States. And that's how we got all of the Fanta flavors. By 1959, Coca-Cola was in 100 countries. So the international expansion continued over decades. Minute Maid was acquired in 1960, and various new products were introduced throughout the 70s. Now, one of the bigger semi-recent innovations within the past few decades was Diet Coke. Diet Coke was introduced in 1982, and it became a really big hit. In 1985, Coca-Cola started reformulating their original Coke formula into something called New Coke. And in taste tests, Coca-Cola had found that people preferred the new formula over the old formula of Coke as well as Pepsi. But the problem was, this is where um, mental models kind of backfired on them. Uh there's, I don't, I'm not sure if this is the exact mental model that's appropriate, but it made me think of it when I was researching this, is the endowment effect. When you own something or are used to something, when it's taken away, you feel more entitled to the value of that thing than what it actually is worth. And I think that mental model applies here. So new Coke was introduced and the old Coke was taken off of the shelves 
And people got really upset. They were like, what did you do to my Coke? I like the way that Coke tasted. Now, we know from the scientific trials that new Coke was actually preferred over old Coke as well as the competitor, main competitor, Pepsi. But the that endowment effect made people angry because they felt like something had been taken from them that they previously enjoyed. And so um, this kind of backfired on Coca-Cola and there was a a lot of outrage. But the thing was Coca-Cola won in the end because they started taking away the new Coke, bringing back the old formula of Coke which they now called Coca-Cola Classic, which was the old product, but instead of using cane sugar, they started using high fructose corn syrup. Now, this was a brilliant move because Coca-Cola, not only were they giving people what they wanted and satiating their desires for a brand that they loved, making further cementing those associations, associations in their brain with their brand, but they were substituting a more costly ingredient, which is cane sugar, into a cheaper ingredient, which is high fructose corn syrup. High fructose corn syrup is, as the name implies, made from corn. And corn is very plentiful and very, very cheap in the United States of America. And so you can see from a supply chain perspective how Coke was able to shift its ingredient mix at the same time as they were allowing the public to get their nostalgia, you know, back with this old formula, um, they were able to skyrocket their sales. So this was a great growth period for Coca-Cola. So even though their new formula backfired, it ended up working out for them over the long term for those reasons. And then throughout the 90s, innovations continued and Coca-Cola began to acquire more brands. So the innovation of the plastic bottle um, became really big. Um, Coke purchased Barks Root Beer, Schweppes Beverages, uh, Peruvian Soft Drink, Inca Cola. There were a lot of new products being added to Coke's arsenal. And then in the 2000s, this trend trend continued and started to branch off more into the non-soda segments as well as soda segments. So there was a partnership in 2001 with Nestle to get into the coffee and tea business. Uh, Simply Orange, orange juice was introduced. The invention of the 12-pack fridge pack was invented around that time. And then there's there's so many brands. I, I can't even really go through all of them, but there's some that you would probably recognize. Ottawa Fruit Beverages, Vanilla Coke was invented. Diet Coke with Lime was invented, Coca-Cola Zero was invented, Vitamin Water and Smart Water were acquired, and in 2009, Coca-Cola created a very innovative vending machine for its products called the Coca-Cola Freestyle. Now, these are all over the place now, but back in 2009, 2010, they were pretty rare, and basically, you can get 100-plus beverages from a single machine based on the dispensing technology combining the carbonated water with the different syrup concentrates and mixing and matching them. Um, So the user has complete control over customizing their soda. So all this to say, Coca-Cola, they've always been inventing new and better ways of of, uh, 
bringing beverages to the world. And not only that, but their distribution system is unparalleled. They have bottlers all over the world now. So that brings us to today. So an overview of the business, here's one statistic that I thought was pretty powerful. 1.7 billion servings of Coca-Cola products are consumed per day. (laughs) That is insane to me. That is a lot of soda, juice, tea, milk, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on. In fact, so much of Coca-Cola's products are sold that 3% of all liquid consumed on planet Earth can be traced to the Coca-Cola company. And that includes tap water, by the way. So Coca-Cola is the largest beverage company in the world. They're in over 200 countries now, and they have thousands of individual products. So let that sink in for a minute. I mean... I've probably heard about Coca-Cola ever since I can remember growing up in the United States. And um, they're just, they're, uh, what's the word? I guess uh, omnipresent on the world stage as far as uh, any type of soda. And now they're, they're in many other types of beverages as well. So... Independent bottlers have grown as well and become large companies in of themselves. So some of the largest bottling organizations are Coca-Cola FEMSA, which is the Latin American, uh, the largest uh, Latin American bottler. There's Coca-Cola, European partners, etc. So there's a bunch of these bottling partners around the world that Coke may like partially control them, um, but they're some of them are fully independent. Um, more recently, a lot of these bottlers have been made fully independent, which we'll get into. So bottlers contracts are basically franchise agreements. They are contracted with the company to buy that syrup concentrates, add that carbonated water, test the final product to make sure it meets Coca-Cola's quality standards, and then package it and then sell it. And they operate within exclusive geographic territories. Now, sometimes when the bottlers are underperforming, Um, in a certain market, the parent company, Coca-Cola, will come in and take uh, a controlling interest in the bottler and basically get them up to snuff and help them improve their efficiency and productivity. So if you were to visualize the flow of products throughout the Coca-Cola supply chain, it kind of goes like this. It's actually not that complicated. So you take sweeteners which high fructose corn syrup is really the big one, but you also have other sweeteners like aspartame and sucralose. So think about your Diet Coke or your Coke Zero. They don't, they don't have traditional sweeteners. They have aspartame. And then you take quote-unquote natural ingredients, which are that proprietary formula we talked about. You mix all that together to create the syrup concentrate. And so you sell that syrup concentrate to your network of bottlers all over the world, And then those bottlers buy aluminum, they buy the raw plastic material from uh, commodities producers to make the packaging, and then they combine that with carbonated water, and voila, you have cans of Coke, you have bottles of Coke, you got your Fanta, you got uh, Diet Coke, you got all sorts of things, and then those 
gets shipped to the restaurants, the vending machines, the convenience stores, and that's how you and I get our Coca-Cola. So in the current era, there have been some concerns about Coke, and these are well-founded. I mean, it's no secret that soda is not necessarily the healthiest thing for you. In fact, I think it's safe to say that at least at a certain level of consumption, Coca-Cola is pretty bad for you. Um, I remember when I graduated college and um, I was like buying Coca-Cola and drinking it with lunch every day. I don't know why I did this, but it's a habit that I picked up and I definitely gained some weight and I attribute at least part of that problem to Coca-Cola. So my overconsumption, even though it was very refreshing. Um, So there have been some health concerns and the question is, what is the company doing to deal with this? Well, they're kind of attacking the problem from multiple angles and I like the way that they're doing this because it's an overall trend that the volumes, the volume sales of soda have been kind of declining bit by bit, a few percentage points every year, because Americans, um, at least Americans, I'm not sure about the rest of the world, but Americans have become more cognizant of the negative health effect of overconsumption of soda. And so they're switching to other types of beverages. And so one thing Coke is doing is they are introducing like these new low calorie and no calorie beverages. There are smaller product sizes and, um, Coca-Cola also doesn't directly market to kids under the age of 12. So they're doing some things to try to manage that risk. But I think the biggest thing that Coke is doing to fight the obesity trend is they're trying to sell less Coke (laughs) as a percentage of their revenues and profits. They're trying to sell more juices. They're trying to sell more waters more milk, um, more tea, more coffee. And so they actually do other things and partner partner with some of the other big players in the space. They partner with Dr. Pepper so that Dr. Pepper gets to use their distribution system um, around the world and also Monster Energy. So Coca-Cola actually owns over 16% of Monster Energy, which is also a publicly traded company also in the S&P 500. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about them in a future episode. But let's get to the financials now. So in 2017, Coca-Cola sold $35 billion of goods. In 2010, Coca-Cola sold $35 billion of goods. Their net income was just $1.2 billion in 2017. While in 2010, it was $11.8 billion. But hold up, this is a massive decline in income. What's going on here? Let's look at the pre-tax income. The story's a little bit better. In 2017, the pre-tax income for Coke was $6.7 billion. And in 2010, $14.2 billion. Okay, that's still a drastic drop. Why is the income declining so much? And as I was studying Coca-Cola, I was getting frustrated because I was like, this... It's like one of the best companies in the world. Why, why is it less profitable year after year? But we'll get to the reasons why in a second. So let's turn our attention quickly to the balance sheet. Coca-Cola has $15 billion in cash compared to 2010, only $11 billion. 
the property, plants, and equipment went from 8.2 this past year, whereas in 2010 it was 14.7 billion. So they have a lot less property and machinery. And the total assets of the company have increased modestly over that time frame as well. If we want to look at the cash flow statement now, we can see that the operating cash, which is kind of like the bread and butter money flowing into the business is how I think about operating cash. In 2017, it was $7 billion. And in 2010, it was $9.5 billion. So again, less money um, over time. The investing cash of the business, um, it tends to hover around 2 to $4 billion, but has decreased a little bit over the years. And this is mainly reinvestment into equipment, into property, into acquisitions, typical, typical business stuff, reinvesting in the business. The financing cash um, has increased over the years. So in 2010, $3.4 billion were used for financing. And in 2017, $7.4 billion were used for financing. Now, this has been mostly dividends being paid out to shareholders. That's where dividends fit in within the cash flow statement. They fall within the financing cash segment um, because that's, that's money that's being paid out. And so, but this is good for shareholders. Dividends have increased at Coca-Cola for decades. And um, so that's the cash flow statement. So I was thinking about this, like why did the revenue, the profit, the cash flow, why is it all decreased over the past few years? Are soda sales really that bad? And so I decided to do a little bit deeper digging and I looked at every year for the past nine years, what the revenue, the net income, the earnings per share, and the operating cash was for the Coca-Cola company. And I noticed a trend. So for revenue, the revenue has actually been increasing pretty well from the 09 period to 2014. 2015, 16, and 17, the revenue started declining. So there is something to notice about right there. And the same thing can be said about net income. Um, and the operating cash also follows the exact same trend. So I was like, well, what's going on? Um, when I read through the company's documents, I realized that Coca-Cola has been making a major shift in its business operating model. So previously, um, in the past decade, Coca-Cola owned the bottlers, actually. And so these bottlers, you could argue that they create more synergies within the organization because now you have the same people packaging the soda as the ones who are producing the syrup concentrate. But the problem with this is that bottling operations um, are very expensive and have a lot of capital intensive aspects to their business. So think about rapidly moving conveyor belts, special furnaces to melt the glass that is formed into the glass bottles that's then filled up with these rapid machines that shoot the coca-cola into the bottle at lightning speed there's a a, a pretty cool video out there um, showing how coca-cola factories actually operate i'll put a link to that in the show notes if you are interested Um, but this takes a lot of investment and so the margins on the overall business are a little bit lower than they would be if Coca-Cola didn't have those bottling operations within its own balance sheet, within its own financial statements. 
And so what Coca-Cola has been doing since 2015 is basically restructuring their operations. So they do not own the bottlers um, anymore, at least not completely. They still hold interests in a lot of the major bottlers, um, but they're not at the, involved at the same level. And so this leads to a quote-unquote asset light business, um, which means that the margins improve. You have less assets on the balance sheet creating the same amount or a similar amount of cash flow. Um, so that's kind of the philosophy that Coke is using, which I kind of like because it seems like it's returning back to its roots back with Asa Candler when he first sold that first uh, bottling agreement to, um, what were those guys' names? Uh, Thomas and Whitehead, I think it was. And so, yeah, so this is kind of a new strategy that Coke has been doing in recent years. And for that reason, they've been getting rid of a lot of their assets. So the revenue looks like it's going down. The profits look like they're going down. The cash flow also looks like it's going down. But really, Coca-Cola is just shedding itself of these operations to try to become more efficient. So no need to worry here. Coca-Cola is not going down in flames. But where is the strategy going forward as far as products? So Coca-Cola kind of looks at it this way. They want to grow within sparkling soft drinks. So that's their bread and butter. They think that this category is going to grow at around 3 to 4% annually. And I think that they can do that with things like smaller packages, um, pricing, those kinds of things. So kind of the traditional business. Then you have the other side of the business, which is the higher growth categories. So within the beverage space, it seems like the the uh, the fight now is over these categories. So uh, juice, dairy, and plant-based beverages are growing at about four to five percent. So that's a little bit faster growth. Tea and coffee that's about three to four percent annual growth that's expected. Hydration. So think about just your basic water, bottled water products, and enhanced water products, mineral water, etc., should be growing at 5 to 6% annually. And energy drinks, that's probably the fastest growing segment within the beverage segment right now, at about 7 to 8% annually. So Coca-Cola wants to expand their market share within these higher growth categories. Now keep in mind, by higher growth, we're talking about like maximum 8% annual growth. So this isn't like growth like Google's earnings per share growth or anything like that. This is within a very mature industry. Um, and so that's why those growth numbers are the way they are. So this is all relative. Um, but nonetheless, Coca-Cola is expanding into these markets. So they're basically trying to be number one in every type of beverage that exists. And they're doing that mainly by buying up other companies that are showing success, as well as innovating within their core brands of Coca-Cola. And so what does the outlook look like? So management is targeting 4 to 6% organic revenue growth, um, which is pretty impressive considering that soda sales are kind of flat to declining. And the earnings per share growth they're targeting is 7 to 9%. And I think this is very doable for a couple of reasons. Um, one, you've got the distribution network that is bar none the best in the world. 
at least from what I've seen so far, that's the case. Uh, they were the first ones to really have that great of a network. And so they have competitive advantages, I guess is my point with that. And so uh, if you have 4 to 6% top line growth, you can usually get 1% or 2% extra percentage points by cutting down costs and innovating on the cost side. So that's where that 7 to 9%, I believe, is coming from. Um, so another thing is that only 45 to 5% of revenue is expected to be needed for capital expenditures over the long term. So if the company sells um, $100 worth of Coca-Cola, only $4.50 to $5 of that should be needed to reinvest back in the, the capital expenditures of the business. And so that's pretty efficient. That means that this business model is really good at generating lots and lots of free cash flow because what are you doing? You're taking water, you're mixing it with different flavors, and then you're marking it up and you're selling just by tons of volume, basically. So your margins are high, your volume is high, so you can make a lot of money that way. And that has been Coke's business model from the get-go. Let's look at valuation a little bit. So the stock has been trading at about $50 a share, and they're expected in 2018 to earn probably around $2 a share or $2.06 a share. So that implies a valuation of 24 times earnings, which historically is a little bit pricey. It's not as pricey as it has been in the past, but it's definitely not cheap. So the thing about Coca-Cola is everybody recognizes how amazing of a company it is. I mean, the earnings quality is impeccable. They're in 200 countries in the world. 3% of all liquid consumed on earth goes through them. They have the bottling network. They have the innovative uh, products. And if they don't innovate everything, they buy the people who do. And uh, that just gets brought into the fold of the portfolio. So the profit stream is pretty reliable. It's probably one of uh, the safest profit engines out there, if I was to to say it. If everybody just stopped drinking Coca-Cola tomorrow and stopped drinking soda worldwide, yeah, they would suffer. Um, but they have a lot of other brands. They've got that stake in Monster Energy. They've got the plant-based, um, the milk-based drinks. They've got the water so there's a lot going on there beyond just the core soda brands that everyone thinks of when Coca-Cola is mentioned. And so I really want to stress that point because Coca-Cola saying they want to become the total beverage company is reflected in their actions in their portfolio. They really are the total beverage company. They have all different types of products in their fold. Now, as far as the returns we can expect as an investor, now this is important. So the dividend right now is $1.56 a share, so about a 3% annual yield from the dividend, which is pretty fair. That's about in line with what Coca-Cola historically has paid. Uh, buybacks, they, typically, they don't buy back a lot of stock, honestly, but about 1% a year um, is what I think we can expect. And then the earnings growth, if management is correct in their outlook, seven to nine percent earnings growth so obviously take what management says with a grain of salt management is always going to be optimistic about how well the company is going to do in the future 
But given Coca-Cola's track record of over um, 125 plus years, uh, there's a lot of data there. And so it's a little bit easier to predict how things will go than, say, a chip maker like NVIDIA. You know, like, who knows? Someone could invent a new technology tomorrow and then NVIDIA doesn't exist. I, I haven't researched NVIDIA, but I'm just saying the risk of technological obsolescence is a little bit different when you're talking about a company like Coke. So if you were to add these components of returns together, so we got a 3% dividend, a 1% buyback, and then say 7 to 9% earnings growth over the long term, that's about 11 to 13% growth annually of the business itself. Now remember, the business itself, that growth does not necessarily mean our returns as an investor. We have to pay a good price. So at 24 times earnings, I think that's a little pricier than Coke usually trades at. So we're going to knock off a couple percentage points for price to earnings ratio compression. So we want to assume the business is going to be fairly valued at some point, right? Because um, over the short term, um, the stock market is a voting machine. But over the long term, the stock market is a weighing machine. The weight of those earnings and intrinsic value is going to carry the price forward. That's a, a Benjamin Graham quote, um, by the way. Uh, and so the long-term returns I think we can expect from Coke, if you were to buy this price point, I think are around 9 10 11%. I think it's going to perform pretty well. It's not going to be as high as it has been historically, 13 14% annual growth. I don't think we're going to get that, um, mainly because of the scale that's already been achieved in the business and... Uh, you know, the health risks are slowing down the growth of the soda brands, but Coca-Cola is still doing pretty well. Um, they've got a, one of the most solid profit engines out there, and um, I think they'll survive another 50, maybe even 100 plus years, but we shall see. Um, so thank you for listening to this, um, I hope, very helpful uh, look at Coca-Cola. Uh, thanks for checking out the Stock Stories podcast. And yeah, my name is Alex. I'm your stock storyteller. And if you want to connect with me, there are multiple ways to do that. Let's have a conversation. Um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Um, the handle is Stock Stories, the number one. So Stock Stories one. Or if you just want to message me directly, talk to me via email. It's alex at stockstoriespodcast.com. So with that, thanks again for listening. And we'll talk about some more companies and mental models next week. presented here on Stock Stories is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. You and you alone are responsible for your investment and financial decisions. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, or financial advisor that can analyze your specific situation in the context of your goals and circumstances.